When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. The Ruler podcast supported by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. I'm not sure exactly who first coined the phrase the metal factory to describe British cycling's world-class performance plan, but it's a perfect description of the setup that's dominated cycle sport, especially on the track, for more than a decade. More than 40 Olympic medals, six victories at the Tour de France, and a seemingly endless production line of young talent emerging through its Manchester headquarters. Some of the gold has been tarnished by persistent but unproven allegations of rule-bending, even doping, bullying, mismanagement and a toxic win-at-any-cost mentality. Well, The Medal Factory is also the title of a soon-to-be-published book by the veteran cycling journalist Kenny Pride. Given that the story is so well rehearsed, why did he decide to write another book on the subject? The initial idea was, was actually a, a magazine feature for Cycle Sport, the late lamented Cycle Sport magazine. I had decided that the story of Peter Keane and Chris Boardman had been undertold, or rather underappreciated, or, you know, the coach and the rider, and, and guys who'd been, and Peter in particular, I think, had revolutionised. It's not too strong a word, I think, but he'd, been, he'd sort of engineered massive changes in British cycling, you know, from the mid-80s onwards in terms of training and nutrition and the approach to the sport. He worked with Chris Boardman, obviously. He coached Chris to the gold medal in 1992. That gave him a lot of credibility. Subsequently, uh, you know, he would go on to be the performance director at British Cycling. Had enormous influence. So in the process of researching this this piece, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And there were so many people to talk to. Then Cycle Sport was shut down. And I thought, hmm, maybe there's a book in it. That is kind of the genesis of the book, uh, but it was one of those situations where you talk to one person, he says, oh, you should talk to this guy, you should talk to this guy. And then, you know, there would be stories and anecdotes. And, and it just grew. And that was it. And a lot of people do feel that sort of Peter Keane's role in the success of British cycling has been underplayed. And that in some ways, you know, Peter Keane did all the hard work and the groundwork. And Dave Brailsford benefited from that and took the glory. Yes, and and no, actually. That's sort of, but, but not quite. I think, you know, the... Peter's approach to the sport uh, and the way he kind of set up the world-class performance programme, Team GB, effectively, was different from, from the way that, that uh, Dave Brailsford approached it. So certainly Peter laid down, you know, the, the foundations. and and But everybody I spoke to, I suppose that was one of the interesting things, like one of the curious things, that Dave changed British cycling. 
everybody that, that I spoke to said he, you know, it, it took off after Dave. Now, whether or not that was Dave or whether or not that was the money that came in after that point is moot. It's probably a, a bit of both. But um, no, Dave Brailsford had, had a big influence on, on British cycling too. But he couldn't have done it without Peter. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't have built the foundations of British cycling. But what he did with it after Dave, after Peter had kind of started the process off was something that people will tell you that Peter couldn't have done. So they kind of needed each other in a way. And as you say, he came with a lot of money or his arrival coincided with a lot of money. But money which came with some strings attached as to what it should be used for and what the results should be. Yeah. In between, I mean, Peter had, had drifted in and out of, of British cycling from, say, the mid-80s when he was coach you know and then he started coaching the pursuit team you know in the late 80s and but he was never he was never fully integrated into British cycling but he was very close to it so he understood what the problems were uh, and and in between actually his work as an academic and working full-time for British cycling as head of performance he went to work uh, in assessing applications for grants that came in from different federations so so Pete knew what needed to be said and done in order to to get a, a grant. The understanding is that you would get funding on the basis of a credible program, not on on uh, not in terms of medals. That's that's one of the, the kind of myths. You only get money if you get medals. You only get money if you present a program that looks like a credible pathway to getting medals. That if you don't have a program that people will assess and say, yeah, that looks like you know you got the coaches. You know, and you hear it a lot, actually, in, in amongst all the coaches talking about pathways. You know, we need pathways, we need clear pathways and processes and programs. That is, that's the language of, of, of modern sport. You know, and if you don't have those things in place, if you, you know, we won five medals before, give us money. That's, that's not going to work. That doesn't work. You know, there's no guarantee. Medals five years ago, whatever medals that you won, will not guarantee future medals. You need to have something in place that shows you. That shows the authorities or you know whoever's dishing out the money how you're going to provide you know how you're going to find the athletes, coach the athletes, prepare them. You know what do you need materials, what program? I mean the whole thing is you know it's not just about medals, but well, but sorry, but the funny thing is that that a well-structured program often leads to medals. <laughs> But also they spotted the opportunity that actually there were medals to be won in track racing, whereas it would be harder uh, to deliver any kind of logical pathway in road racing because road racing is so unpredictable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that, was, that was Peter. Peter was definitely about the numbers and about, you know, steps and, and calibration and measuring and, you know, data and metrics and tyre pressures, air pressure, you know, I mean... Peter measured everything that could be measured, you know, um, and and certainly the, the chaos of you know a scratch race or a Madison was just you know the, there was no point. So if you, if you don't have a lot of money, then you put the money into an area where you think you can you know you can best exploit your knowledge, which is which is pretty much what's happened. And then of course after the arrival of Dave Brailsford, we really moved into the area of marginal gains you know the round the wheels and burning the secret skin suits and the chris boardman's secret research establishment how much of that frankly was a load of bollocks i think the phrase marginal gains was uh, rarely heard until after the success arrived and so 
British cycling turned out to be a fantastically successful sports team. Britain's most successful sports team ever. And it still is, you know. Um, and so all of a sudden there was a huge amount of media interest. And in order to make British cycling look attractive and clever and more like a business than necessarily a sports team, then they came up with this phrase, marginal gains, which was which was then kind of retrofitted, if you like, onto everything that they had been doing for the previous eight years. It certainly didn't, you know, nobody was talking about marginal gains in 2000 or 2004. In fact, I don't even think anybody was talking about it in 2008 until after they had won. Yeah, so it was a great marketing phrase. And in that sense, it deserves some credit, actually, because all of a sudden there were business leaders sort of knocking down the doors and British Cycling was held up as a as an exemplar of, of you know, how sport and how some businesses could be run. And so marginal gains is exactly the sort of phrase that would appeal to newspaper editors, business leaders, you know, that they could all quote and chuck about at each other because it sounded like it was hip and sporty and, yeah, it was a buzzword. And in retrospect, um, was it always going to be really hard to try and run effectively a commercial operation like Team Sky using some of the same people and some of the same premises and some of the same logistics as as British cycling. Yes. I, I, yeah, I don't think there's any, there's any, there's no doubt about it now. I mean, looking back, you just think, my God, what were they thinking? You know, that's insanity. But at the time, because it was all new and people were giddy and successful and excited and, you know, untouchable and they could do no, you know, all those things, you know, we can look back now and go, my God, that's madness. But at the time, nobody was making too much noise about it. It's hard to be hard on them, if you see what I mean. Rightly or wrongly, I guess, uh, when people look back at uh, this era of British cycling, both you know, British cycling, the organisation, and British cycling in general, it will be tainted by two things. One is the whole Jiffy Bag and Richard Freeman um, story, and the other is Shane Sutton. Um, what's your take on both of those, having spoken to so many of the people involved? <laughs> <laughs> take your time so that's my take on a scandal that nearly destroyed a sport scandals multiple I think hindsight's a wonderful thing it's pretty hard to kind of summarise there are so many uh, elements and, and factors that, that feed into it Though I think there was, a, there was a lack of leadership at senior management level and they kind of bottled it I think and, and failed to take some tough decisions Again, easy to say in hindsight. Famously, uh, there was a the Peter King report. Peter King, Alan Keane, but Peter King, the former chief executive, was asked by the then chief executive Ian Drake to carry out an inquiry, an internal report into allegations of uh, sort of bad behaviour and inappropriate behaviour, which included that you know bad behaviour by Shane Sutton and Dave Brailsford after the London 2012 games. Peter King, who was kind of well-known inside Manchester, he was still about in Manchester, he was still he was still a figure that staff and riders would have been comfortable with. Peter King compiled a report and delivered it to Ian Drake in November of, of 2012. And in the report, uh, there were seven or eight bullet points and it said Shane Sutton should probably be... Uh, his, his behaviour should be monitored and perhaps he should sort of be moved slightly away from a sort of daily interface with riders and work more with the senior coach and staff. There was a suggestion made that Dave Brailsford should be moved on as head of performance at British Cycling because by that point, Sky was 
taking over the world, basically. I mean, that was 2012, so they had won Paris-Nice, Tour de Romandie, the Tour, Dauphiné, you know, Wiggins and Froome had done the business at, at the Olympics in the time trial. The suggestion was that perhaps Dave Brailsford should be asked to move from uh, his position at British Cycling. And what happened to that report? It was discussed at board level, and the suggestions were never really... Uh, well, they just weren't implicated. You know, they weren't carried out. They weren't um, carried forward. And I'm not quite sure why, except to note that British Cycling had just had its most successful season ever, most successful year ever. From the World Championships, actually, the World Track Championships, the London Olympics, all the road racing in between. First ever British one at the Tour de France, the whole thing. And so somebody, the board at British Cycling was going to have to ask Dave Brailsford and Shane Sutton basically to back off. And crudely, I suppose, you know, they kind of bottled it. Which, you could argue, is understandable because that... He had just delivered the most successful cycling season in the history of British cycling. So who on the board of British cycling was going to turn around to them and say, thanks very much, clear your desks? In retrospect, may have been a missed opportunity then. It certainly looks like it now. But again, you know, if if Jess Farnish hadn't spoken out in 2016, in March 2016, we would never have known about the King Report. We would never have known about, you know, none of this would have happened, arguably. They knew there were some problems, but again... There was a bit of a failure at senior at board level. At the time, you can understand it. You can understand it why they kind of went, oh, well, you know. And who knows about the politics that operate at board level in an organisation, you know, like British Cycling, you know, there are alliances, internal politics, rivalries. Brian Cookson, who's not necessarily Dave Brailsford's biggest fan, he was the president at the time. But by 2013, going into 2013, he was already thinking about launching a bid to become president of the UCI. So Brian didn't have his eye on the ball. You know, I've no idea, really. But missed opportunity. Easy to say that. But yeah, that's what it looks like. Well, one of the things I think in the book um, that I do talk about is the fact that, that British cycling went from being a, an amateur organisation that was basically like a mom and pop store to something that was fantastically wealthy. So if you like, there was a lot of money being invested in, in an organisation that maybe wasn't managerially set up to cope with it. And again, to be fair, they were making it up as they went along because there was no other organisation. Cycling had never um, been given that amount of money. Um, they, you know, the, the processes and the people and the coaches, the the managers, everybody was 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 box fresh. And they couldn't really look anywhere else to, to sort of for you know to, for a, an organisation to copy. I mean, you know, there was still the, the three A's, the Amateur Athletic Association. It was an amateur organisation that had been given enormous wealth, and they were making it up as they went along. Olympics in Tokyo are coming up uh, pretty soon now. Um, do you think uh, British cycling is going to be as successful as it has been in the for the past uh, couple of Olympic seasons? I think it would be a miracle. If it was, or if only for the reason, I mean, even if the staff had, had stayed substantially the same, which it has, actually, when you drill down into it. But given the run that British Cycling has been on really since 2004 in Athens, and then spectacularly in 2008, 2012, 2016, how can any nation sustain that? More than that, everybody else is kind of woken up. 
you know, everybody else has sort of looked to, to the UK or GB and thought, okay, well, what are they doing? What are they using in terms of, you know, track materials and training and, and even just the way that, that people uh, attack the team pursuit or, or pursuit events now, you know, it's completely different from, from the way it was 20 years ago or many years ago, that'd be 16 years ago or whatever. So everybody's cottoned on. And so Britain would have a hard time maintaining that position anyway. So I'd be astonished. As far as the staff changes go, Stephen Park, he replaced Shane Sutton, effectively. I have a hard time thinking that, that you know, if you look at the, the, the legacy of, you know, Peter Keane, Dave Brailsford, Shane Sutton, you know, if you look at the Olympics that those guys prepared British teams for, Stephen Park will do an astonishing job if he manages to replicate what those guys did. And he's the main change, I think, because if you, if you look at the coaches, Jan van Eyden, uh, Ian Dyer, Paul Manning, they're, they're still in place. You know, they, they were the coaches that, that Shane worked with and that Dave Brailsford worked with, and, and they're still there, so that hasn't really changed. The big changes in British cycling post the, the Sutton Inquiry or whatever have taken place on the non-glamorous side. Good old-fashioned grassroots British cycling. My fear or suspicion is that, that British Cycling has been um, is now run by sports administrators rather than cyclists, which, again, goes back to something I said earlier, that back in the day, they were basically amateur enthusiasts who were cyclists first and, you know, had no clue about sports administration or sexual politics. And now um, there are far fewer of those people in British Cycling. Whether that has an impact, you know, further down the line, I don't know. Kenny, thanks very much indeed for uh, talking to us. And Kenny Pride, the medal factory, is out soon, I think, on Pursuit Books, isn't it, uh, later this month? February the 20th, available from all good bookstores. <laughs> Kenny Pride, this is the Ruler Podcast, supported by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. I'm Mark Williamson, and I've been a Lacquer customer since the start of 2019, so about eight months now. So I was on this new bike and stopped off at a coffee shop at a hotel just to send a few emails and make a call. Came out and found someone had taken off um, the headset at the front. They'd cut the braking gear cables, they'd unscrewed the handlebars and stolen the, the, the bars and shifters. Lacquer were phenomenal, actually. I was blown away by both the immediacy and the kind of helpfulness of the support. They seemed keen to help. Uh, and it was just the, a remarkably hassle-free experience. I couldn't have been happier with the service, despite being incredibly frustrated that somebody had decapitated my, uh, my new bike. So it's time to catch up with uh, Ruler's Desire Editor, Stuart Claps. Stuart, what have you been up to? Um, I've actually been recovering from pneumonia which uh, hasn't been the, the most uh, beautiful journey I've ever been on. Um, you know, when I spoke to you last, I don't, you know, I said I had a cold. Well, I decided I'd, I'd better go to the doctors. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, and, yeah, it turns out I, I actually had pneumonia. So that explains why Lemsip wasn't touching the sides, Ian. But um, right now, I'm, um, I'm just chilling at home with my dog. Are you recovering then? Yeah, I've actually started riding again. And you know when people go to you, oh, you should take it easy. Take it easy when you've got a cold, right? I'm brilliant at giving advice. I bet every cyclist listening to this can give fantastic advice to their mates. But when it comes to them, right, you can't take heed of your own advice. So I thought, who shall I ask? Who's going to be good at, like, giving me advice, right? 
on tips from recovering from illness and getting back into training because it's not like I'm racing or anything but you know you want to be fit don't you right so I thought who can I ask and I thought Dr Adam Blythe will be the perfect person so Adam has coached me back into training I mean what better person do you want for medical advice than Adam Blythe something tells me that Adam Blythe is probably not the best person to go to for uh, medical advice do you know what he was actually really good because you know he's done a bit of riding, hasn't he, over the years? And you would you would kind of you would kind of imagine someone who's had like a ten year pro career to have had had the odd cold once in a while. And you know, bear in mind that like where they are in terms of their fitness is like way beyond normal people. And then they they're going to pick pick up colds all the time. Like there's that there's that old adage of there's a fine line between uh, informed cyclist and a sick one. You know you're constantly pushing your body to uh to limp i think mine was mainly because i had a cold and then went out 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 proper out and uh yeah i think i ruined myself so yeah when you have got a cold rest up ruler 20.1 the current issue is in the shops and it's dropping through people's letterboxes and in the current issue uh the desire section is 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 full of gravel Gravel bikes. It is full of gravel bikes, yeah. And and the location for this shoot, I actually found whilst out on my gravel bike. Did you know sometimes we go a little bit abstract, don't we? Like with desire, and we try and you know we go and shoot it with supercars and things like that. But this one was actually very. There's a story behind it, and I was actually with one of the twins that's modelling in it, Tom and Mark Barningham, who modelling it. I was with them on our right. Was with Mark or Tom? I don't know which one. The twins are tell apart. But we were out riding, and we stumbled across this mill, and uh, and thought, oh, we'll come back here and do the gravel shoot here, which is essentially what a gravel bike does. You know, it sort of opens up your road a little bit more. You know, you can take a like a a wrong turn and go down a, a like a bridleway or something and end up somewhere. And it's, that's precisely what happened, which is why. You know, we've 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 got this venue, but it's really cool. We've got some wicked bikes in there and it was really nice having twins in a shoot because, you know, that's we, we almost missed missed the trick, like and not had them together in a picture. And I think actually out of all the photos that Benedict Campbell's done for Desire, I think one of my favourite pictures he's ever done is in this shoot. And it's the one of them in the laser helmets um, next to this great big, I don't know, part of the old mill that was there. It looks proper, um, you know, like Chernobyl type thing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Like urban exploring, I think they call it. But um, yeah, it looks wicked. So yeah, we've done that. And it's got some nice bikes in it, including mine. And uh, yeah, it's, it's quite exciting. They've got the Look 765 Gravel RS, which is looks really cool. Benedict shot it in this mound of, of um, a rubble. And I, I imagine there's quite a bit of asbestos kicking around. But um, we'll, we'll gloss over that bit. And the Tatisi Flexi, they do a road version of the Tatisi uh, Flexi and, and a gravel one. We did, a, yeah, we did a gravel one in there. My Factor, uh, which, you know, if you've got a nice bike, I might as well put it in, you know. It was like, it's quite obnoxious for a gravel bike, mine. And the other one that's in there, which has been attracting a lot of attention, is the Colnago gravel bike. Yes, I thought you'd get to that. Yeah, yeah, the, the gra- that's kind of the lead bike in the feature it's sort of the opening spread and then gets a double page spread after it but it's such a pretty looking bike and actually something that i didn't think colnago would ever do i didn't think they were ever going to do a gravel bike because well, it's just colnago isn't it they're very quite it's quite traditional and when they did it was like whoa yeah it's quite something and it was it was quite a um 
quite an attraction at the Rouleau Classic back in November. And do you remember back at the uh, Rouleau Classic, we actually had a conversation with Luke from Conago um, on the stand. We did, yeah. And you know what? That's that's quite something because I, I remember very little from the Rouleau Classic. But um, yeah, I do. Yeah, Luke is a legend. Yeah, we did. And Luke, Luke can probably tell us a little bit more about it. On the Colnago stand, and there's a couple of new bikes here which I haven't seen. Obviously, the new gravel bike. So the Prestige won everything cyclocross bike. How does this? Why is this different to having a cyclocross bike? Okay, so our new gravel bike, the G3X, um, differs from the Prestige, our cyclocross uh, model, by having larger clearance for tyres, longer top tube, and a different geometry um, for that so you can kind of hit any type of road gravel off-road wherever you fancy going Um, this model is available as a frame set or complete bike two color options so it's kind of ready to hit the trails wherever you wish to go and have you had a bit of a sort of demand for gravel bikes have people said that we'd we'd like one yeah yeah, there's a big demand for gravel now so um, we kind of thought it's right to put our mark on this model and uh, offer it to people it's nice, isn't it, Stuart? It looks really nice. You've, the one that's on the stand is like a uh, green colour. like a Metallic I, green. Metallic green. I had a uh, Kona Lava Dome in the mid-90s, a very, very similar colour to that. And it's got like an like a eggshell blue uh, seat post, which yep. I and, really like. And the graphic on the frame as well. So it really kind of sets it off. Yeah, it's a very good-looking bike. Very, very good-looking bike. But there's also something else that's new here, right, which was just been unveiled, which is the E64. So I walked past, I walked around a couple of, you know, the show a couple of times, and because I've actually been, I'm really into e-bikes, I haven't got one, but I know that at some point I'm going to have one, and I said, hey, I'm really into e-bikes, and everyone's gone, no, you're not. Actually, I've always, I'm not waxing lyrical, but I am really quite a big fan of an e-bike, because at some point, you still want to go riding with your mates, and you might not be as fit. And this sort of will will take you there. But if I'm going to have one, the C the E64 looks the nuts. Tell us about the uh, Colnago e-bike then. So the Colnago E64 um, looks very very similar in appearance to the C64, um, other than it's fitted with a, a motor battery. Now you will ride this bike generally with the motor switched off, so you ride as a normal kind of road bike, and then you can turn on that assistance as and when you need it. Um, on the climbs or just when you're feeling a little bit tired on the return leg is that what that button is just behind the uh like on on the like the front end of the top tube that's correct so you've got three modes of assistance there how many watts is that going to give you does it work like that it just basically gives you assistance so whatever you put in it'll give you an increase of a percentage gain on that oh okay right that's that's good to know for when I inevitably get one. I mean, I reckon I've got another three three months, especially at this rate, the Ruler Classic. Where I'm going, I'm going to need one this afternoon. Uh, but yeah, that's great. Thanks, mate. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. And that's it from this Ruler podcast. Catch you on the next one. Thank you. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.